Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This episode, I'm pleased to interview Dr. Allison Skipper. Dr. Skipper is a veterinarian and historian at the Royal Veterinary College, London. She has a particular interest in the health and history of brachycephalic dogs and has authored multiple peer-reviewed articles about the subject. She works as a veterinarian at Crufts, has been on kennel club committees, and is very involved in the purebred dog world. I very much respect her nuanced approach to the question of brachycephalic health and welfare. So Dr. Allison Skipper, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're really glad to have you here. So I always start out by asking everyone about their own pets. Do you do you have any dogs, cats? Who do you live with? Um, at the moment, I'm living with three dogs and two cats. Um, the dogs are um, sort of left over from when my children were younger. Um, mm. One one daughter, the daughters are both in their twenties now, but when they were um, sort of young teenagers, one chose a miniature poodle and the other chose a papillon. Um, and so we've currently got two elderly miniature poodles. One of them's 15 and the other's uh, just coming up to 13. He's her son. And one 10-year-old papillon whose mother sadly died 18 months or so ago. Um, and then I've got two old-style Siamese cats. So they are pedigree Siamese cats, but they're not like the modern show type ones. They're deliberately retro to look like they used to when they were less extreme in their body shapes. Oh, so that's what I've I had got a... at the moment. Yeah. Cool. I had a I had a Siamese mixed cat um, when I was younger. Who I think his I knew his mom was a tabby, but he looked very much like a retro Siamese, not not overly slender. Uh, but yeah, really I, I have to say, but everything I've ever acquired in my life, probably the Siamese cats are the thing that were most exactly like I expected them to be. They they are like cliches of Siamese cats. They really are. <laughs> Mine had the Siamese voice for sure. Yes, absolutely. It's very distinctive. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. So, uh, well, we are here to talk about brachycephalic dogs today. And I thought the most useful thing to start out with was to just define our terms to make sure that we're all on the same page and everybody knows what we mean when we call a dog brachycephalic. So do you want to sort of tell us what you would mean by that? And maybe give us some breed examples? Yeah, sure. So the term brachycephalic... Um, means short in the skull. It's actually a term that was originally um, developed in the middle of the 19th century as part of the doctrines of scientific racism when they were trying to classify um, people into different racial groups according to various physical characteristics. Um, but for obvious reasons, it's more or less dropped out of use in the human field and yet is very much used still in the world of dogs, where, of course, because canine skulls vary so dramatically, the word is extremely useful. So a brachycephalic dog is one whose skull is much shortened and whose face is much shortened compared to a, a sort of wolf or jackal ancestral type. So the obvious classic examples are bulldogs, French bulldogs, pugs, Pekingese, um, Boston terriers, um, and other breeds that have similarly shortened faces. Yeah, and there's... Um... A variety, right? So there's the ones that are have the shorter faces, and then would you say like boxers might be sort of more in the in the middle, so their faces are a bit shorter, but not always as short as some other breeds. Uh, yes, absolutely, and of course they vary also in their other bodily characteristics. So the boxer is a good example of a breed that does have um, a fair degree of facial shortening compared to something like a. German Shepherd, um, but um, a boxer's limbs are still fairly dog-shaped, um, very much like other um, 
dogs of a sort of standard shape, um, whereas some other breeds, and of course the bulldog is one that comes to mind, um, their limbs um, and skeletons are also modified quite heavily from what you would see in a wild type um, dog. Um, so um, bulldogs, French bulldogs, um, are born with very little tail and um, bulldogs tend to have these twisted limbs as well. Um, so that with them, the physical modifications go right through the skeleton, not just the skull itself. Yeah, some of the pictures that I've seen uh, of various dog breeds are so interesting when you look at the actual, the skulls and the um, and the legs. I remember the first time when I was in veterinary school and I saw a radiograph, an x-ray of a bulldog, and I just had it realized that the bones actually were so different in bulldogs than in other breeds. And I remember going to the to my resident and saying what is going on here and he said no that's what bulldogs look like so it's it's they have a lot of different morphologies don't they yes absolutely and you know if you're looking at as you know if you're looking at x-rays as a vet you know one of the first questions you ask is what breed is it um mm -hmm. because the shapes vary so much from one breed to another that what's um, normal in one breed and another it can be very, very different. So you always have to think about that when you're thinking about um, veterinary matters or how a dog's meant to move or anything else. Yeah. So, and so then there's this ongoing conversation in the dog world about health problems and how they correlate with some brachycephalic breeds, with many brachycephalic breeds. And one of the things that I found the most interesting, well, how I found you was reading uh, you wrote the first or the second chapter in this uh, book, Health and Welfare of Brachycephalic Companion Animals. And you were talking about the history of concerns with these breeds. And I, I found it so interesting because I had, as many people do, I think, assumed that it was that any concerns were sort of very recent, maybe in the past uh, 20 or certainly no more than 50 years as, as animal welfare um, in my mind was becoming sort of a larger part of society. But you talked about these health concerns going back um, more than 100 years. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I had a fairly unusual, very unusual career trajectory because I've been a vet for a very long time, worked in general practice and done a lot of grassroots work in pedigree dog health. And it was from though that long-standing interest that I began to become interested in the history of these problems. Um, because as you say, um, there's a sort of uh, accept or sort of assumption um, that these things are very much a new problem. Um, and um, you very often see activists who are concerned about the health problems in these breeds um, uh, using images of dogs from um, a century or so ago going look how we've changed them and made their confirmation more extreme and it's certainly true that the confirmation has changed over time um, and then equally you get people in the breed communities for whom the heritage and the mythology of the breed is very much part of the way they see the world who and so you have both sides using history to defend and justify their points of view but often in quite a um, uh, sort of reflex way, not not you know thinking about it very deeply. And I thought that it would be really interesting and helpful to basically ask the question: How did we get here? You know, what 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 have people who've been concerned about the various issues of pedigree dog health, the problems with um, inbreeding, and the problems with extreme confirmation, been thinking and doing during the time that the pedigree dog has been a thing? Um, and so um, I spent a good few years doing a PhD in history and having the luxury of actually going back and looking at the archives on these things. And as you say, it was pretty surprising um, that a lot of the things that we're concerned about today have been a matter of concern not continually of concern, but there have been previous peaks of discussion about them before, um, and particularly um, the issues around brachycephalic health um, certainly have been of concern since the 1890s, basically, in some breeds, which I think you know, it is not something that I would have expected until I 
you know found that out yeah i i feel like history is a lot like science in ways that um in the way that often we think we know something and then when you start really digging into it and um, really looking at the sources you start realizing that what we all assume is not necessarily the way the world is and that it can be actually really challenging to find the answers to some questions that we assume we just know the answer to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the time we take shortcuts when we hold our positions on things or form our views on things, don't we? Um, yeah. And then, you know, if you actually go and look at something different with a, um, no prior assumptions, it can be really surprising what you find. Um, yeah, and... yeah, we learn a lot of history in um, in high school, and I think it's quite abbreviated. There, <laughs> we don't necessarily learn how to think deeply about things. So, when you started looking, well, so what what sources were you using? Let's start there. What sources were you using? Um, so, um, it it was very lucky for me that I live near London, and I did the PhD in a London university, um, and. Um, London is a great place to be if you want to do historical research because there are so many resources available to you. Um, in particular, um, there's an archive at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, which is the registering body for vets in the UK. Um, and there's also the Kennel Club, which is the British Kennel Club, but it just calls itself the Kennel Club because it was the first one. So it was the first. <laughs> unlike the American Kennel Club, it's just called yeah, the Kennel yeah. Club. Um, and and so the 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 um, London offices of the Kennel Club and of the RCBS were at that time about a 40-minute walk from each other in central London. Mm. Um, and um, so I was able to um, look at um, dog books and newspapers of the dog world um, in the Kennel Club and at the veterinary journals at, at RCVS um, and obviously mm -hmm. I branched out to other sources as well um, but basically I was tracing the story through the veterinary media of the time and through the breeders media of the time um, so my emphasis inevitably was more on the world of dog shows because those were the people who wrote things down, you know. Um, and um, in the UK for all the 20th century um, and the end of the 19th century before that and into the beginning of the 21st century, um, there were two um, newspapers printed for the dog show world every week for all that time. Um, an issue of both journals every week and indeed there were more journals than that at the end of the 19th century so there is there is more material to look at than any one person could possibly look at um, there's no shortage of stuff to look through uh, at all um, and so what I did was sort of survey um, the um, sort of uh, key moments in both the veterinary and the breeder press and then delve more deeply at certain periods where it became obvious that there was more going on in terms of concern around canine health. Um, and so one of the one of the periods that I spent the most time on was the years around 1900, where there was a real peak of um, interest and concern about, about particularly uh, breeding dogs with extreme confirmation. And then there was another peak in the 1960s. Um, and then, of course, um, it's um, a, a matter, matter that's become very much more topical again in the last 20 years or so. So although I did look at the times in between, those were the three eras where there was a particular focus on these problems. Interesting. So, so to put that in context, my understanding, and you would know if I'm wrong, and I hope you will correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, so around the 1850s was when we saw the beginning of closed stud books and dog shows and sort of uh, an acceleration of breeding for what I'll call sort of interesting or unusual morphology that before that dogs had been more often, I mean, sometimes they were companions, but more often bred to be, uh, you know, very good at their jobs. And that there was around the 1850s was when there was this increased interest in, oh, we, we can selectively breed and have these interesting shapes. Is that, is that true? Uh, 
mostly that's true. Um, so, I mean, yes, of course, of course, dogs, dogs have always had a job and being a companion is a job, you know, being a hot water bottle is a job if you're living in a, you know, before central heating, isn't it? Um, I mean, I have one of those. I live in New Hampshire where it's chilly and I have a dog that lies on top of me in the winter. So right, exactly. Um, so, um, Certainly, there were was selective breeding for different purposes before the rise of the dog show. Um, lap dogs were, you know, um, well recognised in different varieties at the end of the 18th century and controversial in their own way. Then I've got a friend who's researched that period. So it isn't just dog shows that cause selective breeding. Obviously, what dog shows did do um, is catalyse the separation of breeds in that before that dogs were of types rather than of formalized separate breeds and there's a, a book called the invention of the modern dog by michael warboys julie marie strange and neil pemberton which goes into this in much more detail and which makes the really helpful analogy that if you think of the difference between a spectrum of color like you get in a rainbow and discrete separate colors like you would get on a paint sample card or a box of crayons, that's basically what the advent of the formalized dog show did. Mm. That there was a lot of variety of canine types before, but there wasn't the conceptual delineation between them that came after breed standards were created. Um, so agricultural shows with, for livestock became a thing at the sort of start to middle of the 19th century. And then it was in the 1850s and 60s that dog shows um, became a thing. And they became very fashionable quite suddenly in 1860s Britain, evolving from a sort of fusion of agricultural shows and the sort of underground um, masculine um, sporting communities um, that had been running various sorts of more unsavoury canine competition like rat killing and so forth before that. Um, and, and these two sort of branches of activity sort of joined together and became formalised dog shows where dogs were compared on the basis of their physical appearance. Um, and then the Kennel Club was founded in 1873 to put some sort of order onto what was beginning to become a bit of a free-for-all and develop some sort of overarching regulatory body that um, put all this world into onto a more formalised basis. What it didn't do at that time, and I could say a lot about this, so maybe we shouldn't get distracted down this during this podcast because this mm -hmm. isn't what this is really about was close the stud books um the club stud books were not closed for quite a long time so oh, interesting breed standards came first and everybody thinks um that um breeds were kept pure and separate from that point onwards but my own research has shown that absolutely definitely in the UK anyway that didn't happen till much later um, so the sort of rhetoric of pure breeds came very much before the biological reality was strictly enforced okay I I really want to know more about that and you're right that's not what we said we'd talk about today but can I <laughs> at least ask um, around around when then would you say that the stud book started closing? Around what years? It depends on the breed, um, but in the 20th century. Um, and in the UK, for most breeds, it was a it was a gradual process that began seriously roughly in the 1920s. Which is not to say that there wasn't a good degree of biological separation before that, but sure. but the um, the grey areas were greyer, and the difference that what what was particularly not so clear cut was what made you a member of a breed. So you know nowadays you can't be a pedigree golden retriever unless both your parents were. Um, registered as pedigree golden retrievers on the registry in your country or another registry that's mutually um, recognised by that country's registry. Um, but that was, a, at least in the UK, was a relatively recent um, stipulation. 
before that you could be added to a breed registry if um you know originally just if your owner added you and more more recently than that if um a couple of breed judges said you look like a golden retriever but the absolute requirement um to have two registered ancestors only came in in the uk um surprisingly late in the 20th century and indeed was lifted again about 10 years ago which is not to say that um it's not the case that most registered dogs have registered ancestors because of course they do but that these boundaries are not as rigid as everybody thinks and and, and weren't for a lot of the 20th century Okay, I may need to ask you to come back and talk a lot more about that. That's so interesting. Um, but to, so okay, so to refocus though on brachycephaly, so uh, so we're, we're talking about um, breeds becoming more distinct from each other around the 1850s and 1860s. So what was happening with brachycephalic dogs around that time? So what would they have looked like prior to the 1850s? There were already dogs with shorter faces prior to the 1850s, what were they used for? What did they look like? Well, it depends on the breed. So... <laughs> You're just going to say that every time, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, some of the modern breeds that are well known as brachycephalic simply weren't around in a way that we recognize today. So French bulldogs hadn't been created in the 1860s. Um, Pekingese hadn't yet reached the West. Um, so if you were thinking about dogs that we would now call brachycephalic in the 1860s, um, there would be the ancestor of the modern in, modern English type bulldog. Um, there would be toy spaniels and there would be pugs. Um, and most pugs then would have had longer faces than the typical pug we see today. But... Um, they still looked, you know, you, you would still take them for a pug, if you see what I mean. Um, yes. And interestingly, at that time, um, it was routine to crop, crop a pug's ears off completely um, mm. so that actually that made their heads look rounder um, and sort of created the illusion of, of brachycephaly to a more extreme level, um, even though their noses were a little bit longer. But again, the history of ear cropping is another another um, avenue we maybe shouldn't get too um, diverted down. Um, yeah. But but the bulldogs of the 1860s did not look at all like what what you would think of as an English bulldog today. At that point, they looked very much more like um, a sort of American Staffordshire Terrier um, in that they were fairly active dogs um, with slightly bowed legs, but not particularly with um, a, a sort of um, fair length of tail. Um, and although their heads were broad and muscular and their noses were shorter than, you know, a sort of wolf type nose, obviously, their faces were not nearly as short as they are now. That was a change that came about in the 1890s show ring. Um, and it was... And the, the wrinkles, the facial wrinkles? Yes. Yeah. So all that happened basically in the 1890s show ring and they knew it was happening at the time and it was controversial at the time, which is the really interesting thing. So um, there was a, a vicious debate in the dog press in the 1890s in, in bulldog circles as this type was changing, as the um, sort of more wrinkled, more, more short legged, more short faced uh, type of bulldog was becoming more popular among some judges. There was also a sort of rearguard action um, from other bulldog enthusiasts who were at that time going, no, 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 what are you doing? These dogs couldn't possibly attack a bull. Um, and of course, the interesting thing is, you know, we always tend to think of historical periods in isolation, don't we? But of course, at any given time, there are older people around who can really remember quite a long time ago. Um, and um, it was only um, at the beginning of the 19th century that bull baiting and, you know, attacking a bull for sport with dogs became illegal in England. So in the 1890s, there were still 
old gentlemen whose fathers had enjoyed bull baiting um, and who were using this this um, sort of family memory as an argument um, against the people who were preferring this new, more exaggerated type of bulldog going, no, 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 you know, my, my dad used to um, take a interest in this sport and these modern dogs couldn't possibly do what they were bred for um and and even though obviously they were sort of not defending the sport of bull baiting they did think of that as a good thing it had been abolished they had a sort of wistful um eye to the past sure. of a time where dogs could do the job they were bred for even if that job was no longer acceptable so they very much were using functionality as a argument for why they disliked the modern type. But the reason that the modern type, uh, I mean, the modern type of the 1890s, obviously, um, was um, becoming so popular was basically uh, money. That these these more exaggerated bulldogs of the 1890s and sort of around 1900 were worth enormous amounts of money. Um, and... Um, the, 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 again, this is quite clear in the correspondence in the dog press at the time. They were, you know, they were they were very eloquent and they didn't hold back. They weren't too worried about the laws of libel, you know, um, and and they were saying things like, you know, what are we doing? We're betraying our heritage for filthy lucre and things like this. <laughs> um, and at that time, um, America. Um, was a very big export market for dogs from the UK. Um, and there was a, a bulldog exported um, to America um, in around 1900 for a thousand pounds, which in current um, money is well over a hundred thousand pounds. So, you know, wow. like $120,000 for one dog. It's a lot of lucre. Yeah. It's a lot of lucre. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the people who, who were, breeding these more exaggerated dogs um, made no bones about it. They said, you know, that bull, bull baiting's been established, uh, sorry, been abolished long ago. Who cares whether this dog could do the job or not? You know, we like the look of them and they're worth a lot of money. We're going to carry on breeding them, thanks, you know. Um, but what I haven't said is that the reason that there was so much controversy about it was that even at this point, they recognised health problems associated with mm. the changing confirmation. Um, so this wasn't just a dispute between um, people, you know, reactionary old guard and um, young bloods who wanted a novelty. Um, there was real controversy because they recognised physical difficulties associated with the more exaggerated type, which do map on to the same physical difficulties that people who are concerned about brachycephalic dogs are still concerned about today. So um, they had a lot of issues um, with giving birth. The bitches would very often die whelping. Um, uh, at that time, dogs travelled to shows unescorted in um, railway carriages in special boxes. And if it was a hot show in the summer, hot day in the summer, quite often these dogs would die in transit from overheating. Um, they were known to have breathing problems. Um, some of them had skin disease. You know, there's really very detailed accounts of the concerns that are really surprisingly resonant of what you see today. That is interesting. Um, yeah, I was I was about to ask you uh, before you went ahead and answered whether there Sorry. were <laughs> concerns then as well. No, that's perfect. You were you were right on top of the the thread there. So so then what happened? You said the 1960s was the second wave of debate. Was that so why did the debate ease off and then why did it come back? Right. So bulldogs particularly were really popular and really fashionable um, at the beginning of the 20th century, as I said. And if you look at a graph of registrations at the Kennel Club over time, you can see a calamitous drop off in the registration numbers a few years after that. Um, and I was talking about this with someone the other day who said, oh, well, maybe the same thing will happen, you know, this time as, as did back then. And I said, well, we kind of hope not because that was the First World War. Um, mm. So um, the the thing that really put paid to the popularity of bulldogs as a breed in particular at that point was that 
the First World War broke out and um, breeding of all dogs absolutely plummeted for obvious reasons. Um, and bulldogs didn't really regain the same popularity after that for quite a long time. Um, and the debate over physical exaggeration never really completely went away, but it was very much less at the forefront of people's minds in the dog world throughout the first half of the 20th century, really. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Partly in the 1890s, concerns about racial degeneration and physical deformity and so on were very resonant in the wider zeitgeist, as you see from fiction of the time and all sorts of other things. So it was partly a concern because it was a, a, a sort of motif in wider culture at that point as well. Mm. Um, but there are all sorts of other things that were going on in the first half of the 20th century that we won't get into. But what happened in the 1960s was that a very different incarnation of the debate um, surfaced because for the first time the veterinary profession seriously got involved in questioning um, the practices of some dog breeders. And this really wasn't a thing around 1900 because um, most vets really didn't have a lot to do with dogs. At that point, most vets were still treating horses because horses were still, you know, the most economically important animal because transport largely depended on them still. Sure, sure. Um, and although a lot of vets did treat a few dogs sometimes, for most of them, it was very much a minor activity and a little bit beneath their dignity almost. The veterinary profession was an entirely sure. male, uh, of course, then. And um, there was a, a certain element of contempt for canine practice because it didn't bring in a lot of money. And it was very associated with with um, women and, you know, not a proper manly job like treating horses. Um, the exception being yeah, a for... few vets. Sorry? Yeah, I was going to say, for anyone who wants to read uh, James Harriet, it describes this changeover beautifully, I feel like. Yes, that's right. That's right. There were a few um, vets um, who did specialise in treating the very um, expensive dogs of high society and the dog mm. world um, and who did provide a very high level of care for them, even in the years around 1900. And I've written about them uh, as well elsewhere. Um, but... Um, for obvious reasons, they didn't tend to criticise the dog world too much because it was what their livelihoods depended on. And in a world where um, they were carving out a very minority niche for themselves, they couldn't afford to alienate their patrons, really. Um, and although they did comment in textbooks and so on about the issues we've described, they made no effort really to engage with them politically. What changed there, um, and I'm really talking particularly about the UK context here, I don't know if it happened at exactly the same time in America, though, though certainly the trend was rather parallel, was that after the Second World War, um, the veterinary world had very much changed. And for the first time, small animal practice became a desirable um, a desirable career for sure. mainstream veterinary activity. Um, horses weren't really economically important anymore. Sure, there was still lots of important work in agriculture, but for the first time, um, people were really turning towards small animal practice, which in the UK anyway was partly because um, for the first time in 1948, um, it was made illegal to treat animals um, unless you were a qualified vet. So whereas previously lots of dogs and cats had been treated by people who hadn't been formally qualified, hadn't been formally trained, um, that situation changed. And for the first time, the veterinary profession had monopoly, which meant that small animal work suddenly became a lot more appealing. Um, and so politically astute people began to move into small animal practice and develop a sort of professional identity for themselves and start to question activities such as breeding dogs of exaggerated confirmation, which had really gone unchallenged before that point. Um, and again, the 1960s was a time where 
um, in other sectors, people were beginning to question what was going on. So you've got the first criticism of factory farming practices, the first serious concerns about environmental matters with um, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. So this sort of attention to what was happening in dog breeding was part of a much wider movement, really. Um, and to be fair, breeders were also in the in the dog world, there were also people who were becoming more concerned about these um, issues, but it was very much brought to a head um, in the UK in the early 1960s by certain vets going, okay, what are we going to do about this? This this shouldn't be happening in this way. Um, and the sorts of um, criticisms they made of exaggerated confirmation were really very similar in their tone and the subjects they were addressing to the sorts of criticisms that are made by um, activists in canine health today. That's so that's interesting. I love the way you tie this all into what's going on in the rest of the world. It helps everything make so much more sense than just seeing it out of context. Well, that, that's what you get with being a historian. That's what you get for history. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, so then, how do you use you are differentiating this spike in the 1960s from what's going on today? Um, but it sounds relatively similar to me, although maybe that veterinarians had a larger voice then than they do now. Is that wh what is the difference between the, those two time periods in this debate? Um, I think, well, it's a, there's broader concern today um, involving not just vets, but also um, you know people on social media who've adopted this as a cause. Um, in some breeds, of course, the problems are actually worse. Um, mm. And I think I don't think it's that um, vets are taking a lesser role today. I think it's that more voices have joined them probably um, and that there's a, a more sort of deep-seated and widespread concern about breeding for exaggerated confirmation. Um, I mean, you know, in, in many countries of the world, there have been efforts to address this through legislation in various ways, for example. Um, there was a, a sort of a, another lull between the 1960s and more recent years where, again, attention sort of rather shifted elsewhere. Um, but certainly for the last 15 years or so, um, I th you know, uh, it's very obvious on social social media. And if you're involved in the world of sort of dog interests, that there is a lot of concern about um, breeding for exaggerated confirmation, certainly. Yeah, when you were talking before about people not holding back in the journals that you read from the in the 19th century, I was thinking, well, what about Facebook? So one of the- No, it's very similar, uh, it really is. It's very similar, right? Yeah, so it's um, it's quite a pitched battle on Facebook, I think. And um, I, I had mentioned to you previously that you had written in your chapter in the book that I mentioned, um, just talking about how there's arguments on both sides that tend to be, that they're they seem to have fundamentally incompatible agendas, and yet they're very deeply held, very emotional. And the interactions between the two sides of the debate have been fairly antagonistic and, and fairly unproductive. And I'm, I just, I would be interested to hear more about your thoughts about that. I, I, I would really love to ask how you, if you see a way out of that tangle. Um, but I imagine that. You probably don't because none of us do, but um, I just would be curious to hear uh, your thoughts about what's going on now. Well, I mean, again, to, to a large extent, it does tie into the wider zeitgeist, doesn't it? You know, if you look at mm. political faction and it, factionalism, um, you, know, I, you know, it's no it's no great insight to, to say that social media encourages polarization. I mean, it literally encourages it through the algorithms it feeds you. Um, and of course, it provides these very convenient echo chambers um, where it's actually quite difficult um, to even become exposed to the more thoughtful contributions from the other camp because you're fenced in with your own camp. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's very unhelpful 
careful always to demonize the opposition you know unless unless the opposition is literally um carrying out evils of the level of the holocaust but if the opposition obviously i mean i'm not saying you should always be trying to find good in 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 any situation but if the opposition are people who are basically you know functioning within society as we know it then trying to understand why they think as they do is never going to be time wasted is it um and yet because people become frustrated with what they see as the lack of understanding and acceptance from the other faction in, in in the sort of concerns of dog breeding and dog health there does always tend to be this very reductive resorting to um stereotypes and um uh, you know rapid m- f- superficial judgments and you see it in both camps don't you i mean you, course, if, yes. if, if you yes. hang out on a, on a breeders forum they're going um you know bloody vets they're all the same they only care about the money they don't know anything about my breed um mm-hmm. you know i don't trust them to use the right drugs for my breed um they don't understand what i'm trying to do they're always talking about neutering you know you know the arguments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then similarly um on the veterinary side, you, you know, I, I've said this before in in veterinary circles. Um, you know, in, in the UK, um, there's um, it, it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of protect, protect, on the basis of protected characteristics such as you know race, sexuality, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, uh, and I've of, I've often said that if uh, being a breeder were a protected characteristic, then a lot of vets would be guilty of hate crime because mm. the way in which they speak about breeders as if they were all the same and as if they um, were all um, culpable of abhorrent practices is just not an acceptable way to speak about any group Um simply on the basis of what they're doing, if what they're doing is a legal activity, you know. Um, And so I think it's really helpful to try to understand the other side, whichever side you're on, you know. Um, And for people in breed communities, that very often takes an enormously important role in their lives, doesn't it? Um, you, know, you know, they're bound together by the, the by the social ties, by the sort of breed mythologies, um, by the actual shared um, dogs and their breeding histories, and their you know their close friendships with other people who are interested and involved in that breed, and that shapes the way they look at the world, um, and. If you're going to try to improve the issues around extreme confirmation, it has to be a very multifaceted approach that really tries to understand what's going on, because what's going on is not necessarily um, what people think it is. And again, people want something very simple that they can grab onto. So they criticise breed standards, for example. Um, in the UK, breed, um, kennel club breed standards have been reworded at, at four times since the 1980s um, and are very much moderated from what they used to be. Many of the breeders who are breeding for the most extreme confirmation have um, little or nothing to do with the show ring in many breeds and aren't even paying attention to the breed standards anyway. So simply attacking the breed standards is not necessarily looking at where the sort of worst element of the problem actually is. Um, And I think also that if you are looking to deal with a problem, you have to be prepared to go for small steps and to deal with the problem where it is rather than where you would like it to be. So there are plenty of people who think that dogs of more extreme confirmation in you know, a breeds that have more extreme confirmation shouldn't be bred from at all 
Um, my preference is very much more to encourage people who are going to breed those breeds to choose the ones with less extreme conformation and to engage with health testing where it's available um, so that they're selecting for healthier dogs within that breed. Um, so, for example, in the UK, the Kennel Club and the University of Cambridge have developed um, the respiratory function grading scheme. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, a little for bulldogs. bit, but I, it, a little bit, but it makes sense for you to explain it for others. Sure. Also. So at the Please. moment, that's just been rolled out for bulldogs, French bulldogs, and pugs, um, but it's being extended to other breeds. And the idea with it is that for a lot of these dogs, they have physical problems with breathing. Um, the exact nature of the problem varies from one dog to another and by breed. But within any of these breeds, they're not all equally bad, obviously. And so if you can quantify roughly how bad a dog is and breed preferentially from the ones that are less bad, then hopefully over time, you're going to be selecting for dogs that can breathe better, which is obviously a good thing. You know, if people are going to breed bulldogs, it's obviously much better that they breed bulldogs that can breathe better rather than bulldogs that breathe worse. Um, and so I think there's a lot of merit in encouraging breeders and puppy buyers if they are, you know, unswervably loyal to a breed like bulldogs to engage with health testing that addresses the biggest problems. Um, and certainly the respiratory function grading scheme is beginning to be rolled out under license in some other countries, I think. Um, and time will tell how much of, a, of an influence it actually has. But the idea of breeding from dogs that can breathe better can't be a bad thing. So as that new scheme is rolling out, how how well is that being accepted by the community? Are breeders taking it up with enthusiasm? Um, how's that going? Um, I think there's a minority of breeders who've been very supportive about it um, and are, you know, really see the merit in trying to engage with this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's a breed where uh, there's somebody very active who's respected in the breed community who um, is able to influence and persuade other breeders to um, engage with it as well that can be really helpful um, and certainly in, in bulldogs in the UK there's been a lady who has been very influential and active in breed health and she's been really instrumental in encouraging others um, within the show community to um, become involved as well Obviously, there will be other people who are more lacklustre or maybe they get a result that wasn't as good as they expect and that puts them off somewhat. Um, and then, of course, inevitably, there are um, breeders who just aren't very interested in health matters, who don't engage with these things um, or who aren't even really part of um, the more actively involved community at all and may not even know that these things exist. Um, so um, I'm talking when I talk about people who are involved with, with, with the uh, respiratory function grading scheme more about the show community because this is something that has emerged from the Kennel Club. But there are large numbers of commercial breeders of bulldogs in the UK who doubtless neither know nor care that this scheme even exists. Um, and they're very often the ones who are breeding dogs with worse conformation as well. So uh, it's very much more difficult to reach those people, particularly if they're maybe only breeding one or two litters and, and not really becoming enmeshed in any sort of breed community, which is also a, a concern. Yeah, it's for sure a problem. And we see that here as well, that there are breeders who are really doing their best and really put the dog's um, health as a high priority. And then there are breeders who are not, for whom the health is not a very high priority. And, you know, back to filthy lucre driving a lot of what's going on there. Um, and with popular breeds and popular mixes, particularly, I think it's obvious that we, we see more and more of people who are just in it for the money. Um, but important not to forget that there are the people who are really trying to work to better the breed. Um, so I know there's been 
There has, however, been research. Uh, a few years back, there was a paper that came out that suggested that with bulldogs, at least, it actually was going to be pretty difficult to selectively breed to lengthen the muzzle um, within the existing population just because there were so few of them with any sort of muzzle length. Um, do you have a feel for how, what sort of challenges um, the, the really dedicated breeders are facing right now in order to make changes? Well, there's a very interesting situation with tails. Um, so uh, I find this really interesting because of the connection with history. So the average extreme bulldog today has little or no tail. Um, they have spinal um, abnormalities very often and then what's called a screw tail or even no tail, which is a little twisty stump of a thing just above the anus, um, which obviously um, can be a sign of uh, deformities in the spine that can cause problems. And interestingly, at least in the UK, the breed standard has never required a screw tail. Um, but the screw tail arose in the 1890s because it became fashionable, even though it was not required at the breed, breed standard. And at that point, the breed standard actually um, specifically requested a different sort of tail. The breeders of the 1890s liked screw tails, so they bred for them anyway. And they created a bulldog with a screw tail over a surprisingly small number of generations. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a geneticist in the sense of modern expertise in genetics so, at all, really. Um, but I gather that there's a sequence of DNA or, or that is sort of multiplied in order to create the screw tail. And they were obviously sort of doubling up the, this sequence repeatedly through deliberately inbreeding to fix this characteristic um, and created a really remarkable level of physical change in a relatively short time. But in the last 10 years or so in the UK show ring, because we introduced um, veterinary checks 10 years ago and um, very extreme confirmation became less acceptable, breeders still within a closed population began selecting for less extreme tails. And if you look at a ring of a show ring of bulldogs in the UK today, they will have not long tails, but they will have tails. They will all have at least a little stump, whereas 10 years ago, or nearly all, whereas at least, whereas 10 years ago, they wouldn't have done. And so even though they are working within a, a closed population with, um, we're told, very little genetic variation, by selecting for a different appearance, they have already made a noticeable change as a group, as a community, in a relatively short time. Now, the reason I'm talking about tails when you asked me about heads, obviously, is because I've seen this change in tails. They have also been selecting for a slightly different head type. Um, and in all the breeds that the show community has striven in the UK to make a little more moderate over the last decade, there has been some improvement simply because they've changed which dogs they breed from and they've changed which dogs they bring into the show ring. Obviously, you could make those changes more quickly if you outcrossed further, but I personally think that the evidence suggests that there's more plasticity than theory alone might suggest if you look at what actually happens when breeders select for something different. Well, that's fair. I think it's another case of you don't really know until you dig down into it and we haven't we haven't tried yet, so we'll find out as people try. Exactly, exactly. See I think, what works. yeah, I, I think that the dog is an extraordinarily um, alterable thing physically. Yeah, <laughs> and there's for all, sure. all sorts of ways to do that. Um, but, but the other thing is how much of this is people's aesthetic preferences, obviously. 
and how much of that is dictated by what people expect to see. Um, and there was a there was a commentator in the dog press who wrote this in the mid 1960s. He was a, he was a poodle breeder actually. Um, at a t- breeding poodles at a time, obviously, when poodles were really fashionable. So I suppose he he was speaking from that point of view. And he said something like, um, we get used to seeing whatever fa- whatever's fashionable at the at the time. But as fashions change, um, we get used to seeing something else. And then what we used to think looked beautiful looks odd. And that's absolutely true, I think, in shapes of dog as well. Um, you know, when docking was banned in the UK 15, getting on for 20 years ago, um, it did seem strange at first to see dogs like poodles, and I've got two poodles, with long tails, because we'd never seen them like that before. But now it looks odd to me if I see a picture of a poodle with a short tail. And that's simply that your eye gets used to something else if you're seeing it all the time, isn't it? Um, so I think if it's possible to sort of alter what people expect to see, then that in itself can be helpful um, in just gradually shifting expectations of what people think a certain breed should look like. Yeah, I like that as a as an answer to my question of how do we get out of the, the tangle? How do we get out of the conundrum of start to start to look at pictures of, you know, start to change what's normal. Yeah, I think it's lots, lots of different approaches, lots of baby steps. And, um, you you know, the other thing I often say is, you know, the old saying that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Um, You know, you don't, you don't change people's minds by shouting at them, do you? No, for sure not. Um, And I, that's something that Facebook doesn't understand, I think. No, absolutely. That's right. (laughs) So, well, so one thing that I want to follow up on just as we start to wrap up, um, as we're talking about the success that breeders have had with changing some of the their characteristics of some of these breeds over time, um, I saw that you had done some work with Dr. Dan O'Neill looking at some of the health problems, I think specifically in bulldogs. Um, and I know that what I hear a lot of times when I... And talking with people about health problems associated with brachycephalic breeds, um, breeders who, who care a lot about their dogs and are doing their best will say often that the research um, is primarily looking at dogs that are not well-bred, you know, by which they mean, I think, breeders that aren't really making an effort to produce dogs who can, for example, breathe or not have spinal deformities. Um, and that's something that I think is a a central struggle in the conversation about whether the evidence that's out there suggesting that there are problems with brachycephalic dogs do, whether that evidence does apply to people who are trying and, and do care and are making an effort. And I'd be interested to, to hear you weigh in on that. So there's a whole load to unpack there. So the research you're talking about, which is the vet compass research after the Royal Veterinary College, does a very specific thing. Um, It's data that is harvested from a large number of participating UK practices looking at the dogs that are actually out there in the real world. So for this purpose, it's a bulldog if the owner and the receptionist in the vet practice together said it was a bulldog. Yeah. Mm. Um, And those dogs that are written down in the veterinary records as bulldogs. Some of them will be Kennel Club registered bulldogs. Some of them won't be. Some of them might not really look very much like what you would consider an English bulldog to look like at all, you know. Um, So you're definitely looking at a really mixed population there, which is actually very valuable in terms of trying to capture what's going on on the ground in the population as a whole, rather than a population that's been particularly filtered for some purpose or another. And that's all that those studies ever claim to do or, 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 or try to do, is just get a snapshot of what the sort of general non-referral, non-selected population that approximates to a certain breed has as its major health issues. Um, 
when people say that their subsection of a breed doesn't have these problems, occasionally that's true. If the, if it is a very conscientious group of breeders who are together screening for something or other, very often um, it's not true, um, either because uh, people are just saying they don't have a problem when they self-evidently sometimes do, or when the or because they haven't looked. I mean, that's not perhaps quite so much the case for brachycephalic issues, which are physically visible. But certainly, if you're thinking about less visible um, conditions, if you don't look, you won't find them necessarily. And then, of course, the other thing is that if you're um, in a breed community so that you're surrounded by other people who live their lives with a certain breed of dog, as you do too, um, then you do all end up singing from the same hymn sheet. And even if you're in a breed where the confirmation is quite extreme, that can become to seem, begin to seem normal to you. Um, and sometimes if a critic from outside comes in and says, you know, actually, these dogs in this breed have really short legs or really baggy eyelids or they can't breathe, people are in, in that breed community are genuinely affronted because they really don't see it. And it takes time for them to go, actually, maybe this isn't okay, you know. Um, and I think if anybody's in a fairly restricted community with a certain worldview and you really challenge their views, whatever those views may be, people aren't instantly going to just go, oh, yes, of course, you're right. Sorry, are they? People always take time to go through the painful process of readjusting their thoughts on an issue. And that's exactly the same with confirmation um, issues in certain breeds of dog. Um, and these norms do shift. But it does take time and it is very, very dependent on having active leadership within that breed community of people who are prepared to put their heads above the parapet and go, you know, guys, maybe we shouldn't be doing it quite this way, which is the other thing that I think is really important, that those who are trying to affect improvement in breed confirmation but are not part of those communities, your biggest ally is the person within that community who's prepared to speak to you because they're the one who the other people in that breed community may listen to you, may listen to more than they will listen to you. And that's why outreach that talks to breed communities, engages with the people in those communities who are willing to be engaged with, builds bridges, does tend to be more successful because no health scheme, no evaluation of confirmation will work unless people engage with it, either because they're compelled to or because they've chosen to. Yeah, and I'm not a big believer in compelling people. They'll always find if if your heart isn't in it, you'll find a way to you know, to do it differently, I feel like. Yeah, I, I certainly a person, you know, I know there are a lot of people who who are very um involved in these matters who passionately believe that legislation is the way forward. Um but personally, I don't think that Maybe if in an ideal world where legislation was enforced perfectly and fairly, maybe it would help. But that's not the world we live in, you know. Um, and it's yeah. always the way that the more responsible people will comply with the legislation and the more ignorant or um, criminal or lazy ones just won't. So yes. you're always filtering off the better people with legislation. It's a very blunt tool. And the ones who want to ignore it or get around it will. And so personally, although many people who I respect, I know are ardent proponents of legislation on these issues, um, I don't see that it's likely to be a very effective way of intervening generally. I think education um, and changing what people consider as acceptable and normal is far more likely to succeed, but it is slow. Um, and altering norms in breed communities can happen. It does happen, but it takes time and it takes a multiple of approaches, you know, a, a, approaches of changing what's acceptable in the show ring, of what puppy buyers want, um, of um, understanding of these diseases um, and of recognising um, that priorities can be different and maybe should be different. And all of those things take time. Yeah, a multitude of approaches. Um, but I think that has been the theme of this conversation again and again is 
changing um, what is normal and what we see as normal for a particular breed is is the way to go. And how exactly to do that is a, is a slow process and a process in which it is going to be very important to build bridges and to do one's best to not be antagonistic on either side. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. And and use the tools at your disposal and um, accept that problems that have been around for over a century are not going to disappear overnight. You know, <laughs> that, That's just not how right. it works. Right. Um, and, and that small steps are still worth making, I believe, as well. You know, just because it can't all be perfect doesn't mean it's not worth improving it. Yeah, that's fair. Well, thank you so much for all of these thoughts. I I um, have really appreciated your very measured approach um, and your commitment to not demonizing either side. I think that's so important, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Thank you.